0: Welcome to another episode of Society for Armenian Studies podcast series. My name is Vahe Sagan, and I'm currently a researcher and senior information resources specialist at the University of Michigan-Dearborn Armenian Research Center. Today, my guest is Dr. Hachik Tololian, who is a professor of English and comparative literature at Wesleyan University. Dr. Tololian is one of the founders of the field of diaspora studies. He was the founding editor of the award-winning Diaspora, a Journal of Transnational Studies. He served as editor of Diaspora since 1991. Dr. Tololian's research interests include world literature, in particular, global Anglophone fiction, as well as ethnicity, nationalism, transnationalism, globalization, and diasporas. Welcome, Dr. Tololian. It's good to have you here. Thank you very much. Nice to be there. <laughs> <laughs> so I would like to start by asking you about your backgrounds. I'm sure our listeners would be curious to learn about Hajik Tololiant, who studied as a biology student but ended up becoming a professor of comparative literature and indeed one of the most prominent scholars of diaspora. How did these changes happen in your interests, and retrospectively, why did they happen?:
1: Well, a lot of things happen to someone who has lived 76 years. I started out very much in a household that was literary, not only my father, but also my mother taught literature, translated literature, etc. So I grew up with the idea of literature, but was always interested in the other side. When we came to the United States and I started attending Harvard, I thought what I wanted to do was be a doctor. And so I thought that preparing with a BA in molecular biology would be the best preparation for that. And indeed, I finished that degree, but at the same time, working in hospitals convinced me that I didn't want to be a doctor, and yeah. I wasn't sure what I wanted to be, so I continued graduate study in biology for three years, switching from molecular biology to organismic and environmental biology, marine biology, etc, and eventually accepted the fact that I did not want to live in the lab, and that's what scientists want to success do, succeed do. They live in the laboratory. Right. So I moved over, got a quick MA in English and then a serious PhD in comparative literature at Brown University. And when you're in comparative literature, you don't know whether you're going to be hired by a department of a specific literature or a comparative literature. I got the best job offer I got was in an English literature department. So I took that on um, did all kinds of things, very jack- what what Americans call a jack-of-all-trades. And uh, while I was doing that, I became very interested in the work of a novelist named Thomas Pynchon, who was, from the 1960s to the 1980s, probably the single most important white male American novelist. And he was very interested in science, and he used science in his novels. So I could use my background in writing about him. I started the journal called Pynchon Notes because I could sense that he was going to be increasingly important. And I wanted to take part in formulating the critical discourse about him. Of course, I didn't know at the time that this instinct for something that was going to happen was going to stand me in, in, in good stead later. I started that journal with a younger colleague, John Kraft. And later on, we recruited even a third co-editor. And I left in order to run uh, Diaspora, the new journal. But it was a successful one and had a very long run. Then when I got tenure in the English department at Wesleyan, I felt myself at a loss. I knew that I didn't want to continue in the path that I had worked to get tenure. And, uh, you know, I spent, I think, three years writing book reviews and not knowing just where I was going. Then an event happened, which I think your audience may enjoy. I also worked with Girard Baridian and Kurken Sarkisian at the Zorian Institute in a participatory role. And uh, one day a phone call came from Queens College, which is a major part of City University of New York. There, the Jewish students had organized a diaspora day. Mm-hmm. And they had invited and had received answers from two figures who would come and give them talks. One was Abba Ibn, the former foreign minister of Israel and a famous speaker. And the other was Amos Oz, an emerging novelist and writer. So they had these two famous people coming. Queens includes the area of Astoria. There are 400,000 Greek immigrants in Queens. And the Greek students wanted something and they got somebody from their ministry of diaspora. So the local Armenian students called us up and said, who can we invite? And the people who went on behalf to speak for the Armenian community were a political scientist from Queens called Hrach Zadoyan, Jirayr Libaridyan, and myself. And when I was there and giving those talks, now by by that time I had already published many, many articles and columns in Armenian and uh, on diaspora. And I'd published a little yeah. book actually in Armenia called Spurkimech in the Diaspora. Uh, I started thinking, you know, I've been doing this because I have an interest in it, but this is not just something I'm interested in. Look at the kind of extent of interest that was there. And in exactly that year, 1987, I published my first article on Armenian terrorism. And that, that is a story of its own and how I got to go to the Political Science Association, but I won't go into all the details. But I did, and it was a hit. It was published in five different versions over time.
0: Oh, wow. and
1: I just kept adding things and spinning it and doing it again. And for the next, from 87 to 93, I also got to travel in US and Europe giving lectures on RV and terrorism. And the whole time I was doing this, I was thinking, but RV and terrorism is truly a diaspora phenomenon. There right. there are no, uh, for obvious reasons, you the folks in the Republic of RV and the Soviet Republic of RV were involved, And somewhere in there, it was in 1989, I sat down and I wrote a proposal for a journal on diaspora studies, just exactly following along the track of creating pension notes. Mm -hmm. And I sort of played with that for a year, talked about it with a couple of friends, American friends, a Palestinian specialist, for example, because the Palestinian diaspora. And my ideas took shape and I sent the proposal in to four university presses, Two, uh, one at Oxford and one at Johns Hopkins, so both prestigious presses, agreed to publish it, said it was very interesting. They believed this was a coming thing. But both said that because diaspora is not a department and because most journals are oriented towards departments that subscribe, they thought it would lose a lot of money before it found people in there. And they said really it would be five years. And it was as though they had compared notes. They said it 'll cost twenty to twenty five thousand a year in red ink in losses oh. before it actually became a thing and uh, I was sitting and wondering about what to do with this when I was in a Zorian meeting, and after the meeting, you know we were doing the usual drinking and talking, and I said uh, you know th- here 's an interesting item, and I described it i mean i hadn 't asked anyone 's permission to do it. These are things that you do on your own. And uh, everyone said, that's interesting, that's interesting. One person, uh, the late Garvis uh, Kortian, said, it won't work. He gave his reasons. Azir Ali Baridian said, it's very interesting, but I don't know how you'll make it work. And Kurken Sarkisian, who had already been supporting the Zorian financially and was one of the people whose vision worked to help shape the Zorian, He turned to the non-Armenian specialist who was in the Zorian organization at that time, a sociologist named Irving Lewis Horowitz, and asked him what he thought. And he said, it's very daring. It probably won't work, but it's a really terrific idea. Mm -hmm. And Korka Sarkisian turned to me and said very casually, so how much did they say this would cost? I said, five years of 25,000 years. He said, I'll write that check. That's how Diaspora was (laughs) born. We already had the acceptances. Uh, And Kurkin asked that we go with Oxford because he felt that its reputation was more global, which is true, although Johns Hopkins is also a great press. So anyway, we went to Oxford and that was it. After the first five years at Oxford, when the time came to renegotiate the conditions that was part of the contract, they made things harder on us monetarily and so forth. And so we moved to the University of Toronto Press, mm-hmm. which was also good because the Zorian Institute at and Sarkisian were in Toronto. And because in those days, the American dollar was worth a lot more than the Canadian dollar. And since our subscriptions came in uh, American dollars, it was better for our oh, yeah. So
0: that's,
1: that's really how it came about. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's as short as I can tell it.
0: Okay. So I, um, I want to actually go back to the 80s first before coming to the 90s and the diaspora period. So having read much of what you wrote about diasporas, both in academic journals and in other publications, in uh, English and Armenian languages, I could actually observe two stages in your developing career as a diaspora scholar. I'm assuming, and please feel free to disagree if this is, (laughs) you know, my I'm very interested to hear what you thought. I'm assuming the first stage began in the early 80s when you started a rubric called Spurkayo Chronic and that is a chronicle of the diaspora Armenian, in the supplement of the Paris-based Armenian-language daily Haraj. What did you try to accomplish by publishing essays in Haraj about the Armenian diaspora at the time, and why Haraj? There were many other like Armenian-language newspapers in the U.S., and you were living in the U.S. Why did you choose Haraj? Well...
1: I, I I started publishing in Haraj and in the Hayrenik of the United States at the same time in 1975. At the time, I published a few pieces in the Hayrenik. My father was actually the editor of the oh, okay. Um, but it was very clear to me that I wanted to do a couple of things. I wanted to write about whatever topic came to mind at whatever length I wanted and with whatever freedom to explore ideas that I wanted. And I quickly felt that to publish in the Tashnak or ARF press was going to be difficult because starting in 1977, uh, the ARF and the editor of Haraj, Arpik Misakyan, had differences of opinion. And the kind of writing I was doing was more suited for Haraj, which was much more open to me Mm -hmm. than for Hayrenik or Asmarez. So that was I started publishing there start exclusively in Haraj in 1977. So even before 1980, and uh, I would write essentially uh, reporting of events. So at one point there was a very important in 1977, a very important event at which Armenian writers who had come from Lebanon after the civil war had started Vayoshagan, Veanush Tekyan, others who were less important. Uh, they met with Armenian American writers and I was there and I wrote a report of that, which is, I mean, if you look at it now, it's 40 to 50 pages long and it was published in installments in Haraj. Mm -hmm. Haraj was willing to say, this is a matter of diasporic importance. So we will publish it every day for I think 20 days, you know, something like that. Um, I may still have that somewhere. I don't know if I can dare to look at it again, but, but, that was that. That was the important thing. Furthermore, I went to Paris every year. In my lifetime, I've gone to Paris forty-nine times. Uh, the shortest was three days, and the longest was a month. Mm-hmm. So, and I was close to many members of the Armenian community. You can imagine Arpik Misaki, I'm the editor of Haraj. Arpik Totoyan, the associate editor, who was from Istanbul. Uh, Krikor Beladiad, who was the most important Armenian poet of the diaspora and an intellectual and Mark the Shanyan, a quite well-known intellectual. We were a circle, you know, I have photographs of us sitting together drinking talk. So it was natural to make Paris and Haraj the the home. Mm -hmm. Um, The chronicles were, it's chronicles meant at that point that there was no order. I, I wasn't aiming at a particular trajectory of thought. I was just writing about things that happened in a quotidian manner that seemed mm-hmm. to me important and suggestive, I've always been as interested in in nonfictional prose in the essay form. And Haratch gave me the opportunity to develop my style in that.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, it was in this period that you also featured in William Saroyan um, Armenian ah, yes. Armenian trilogy, right? How did yeah. you end up in this series of plays as a character? How did you meet William Saroyan, and how long you remained in touch? Well,
1: Saroyan lived not far, about less than a mile away from the editorial offices of Haraj. He lived on Rue Tebou. And one day I was in Paris with the, the woman I was involved with, an Armenian woman named Sylvia. We were there. And we were walking from our hotel to the Haraj offices when a man passed by us hurrying with a bouquet of roses. And I looked at him and I said to to, to her, to Sylvia, that's William Saroyan, you know, and I bet he's going to Haraj. He drops in a bit two or two, three times a year. When we got there, he had already arrived, presented the roses to Arpik Misakyan, and had sat at one of the tables and, well, you know, was waiting for his drink, I think. Mm. <laughs> Harach was a place where they put the paper to bed between three and five o'clock, depending on the kind of news day it was. And then we sat and we drank coffee or alcohol and we talked and whoever dropped in talked. So people like, um, Vano Siradelian or Vaskem Manukian. I met those people, not in Armenia, but in the offices of Arach when they Mm. were far more relaxed and we talked for a long period of time. Uh, but at any rate, so we were there and, Saroyan would listen a lot and say a little. And then he suddenly turned to us and started asking us questions because he's from America. We're both from America. He was sort of intrigued by the the phenomenon he was seeing where where, where one of us, myself, was actively involved in Armenian writing. So he asked a bunch of questions and that was it. He left. Uh, as you know, he stayed for an hour, an hour and a half, I would say. Mostly he talked because he was a man who liked to have an audience. More, more, I do too, but he, he liked it even more. And of course he dominated. It. And so I don't know when it was, a year and a half, two years later, that it was Professor Dikran Kuyumjan, who at the time held the Armenian chair at Cal State Fresno and who was close to Saroyan. It was from him that I found out that we had been featured in <laughs> this, this but the thing is that I', of course, read the the text of the play. It really has extremely little to do with the actual conversation that went on. Oh, okay. He did what he did what writers do. He used his creative privilege of lifting a sentence here and there or there, and then attaching that to actual names and and doing what he did. So I can't say that that play is a faithful reflection of what went on but uh, yeah he, he 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 showed up at Haraj once i also wrote one of the pieces
0: about him after he died uh, there, there was a special issue and i, I wrote a piece about it yeah. well that was interesting when i was reading i kept thinking about was this an actual conversation they had or was this something that he actually failed on some kind of encounter <laughs> That's now I, I
1: would i would say that 10% of it is practically citation of sentences that were spoken. Another 10% is from ideas that were spoken about, and the rest is just him.
0: Yeah,
1: And that's true of many. I mean, l- novelists will tell you that they will loot your conversation and do it. Right. <laughs>
0: In this period in the eighties still, yeah. how did you negotiate between your academic interest in Anglophone fiction and your personal interest in the Armenian diaspora? Was there a stage when you thought about your personal experiences as diaspora Armenian in the Armenian language and about the the comparative literature and your academic interest in the English language? That's that that's something I've never
1: figured out for myself fully by it's a very good question. That is I was aware very much that, in some sense, I have a writer's temperament. Really not. What I would say is I have an intellectual's temperament. Mm -hmm. There's a whole collection of issues towards which I'm inclined to talk and think and write because of being Armenian and because of being an intellectual. Uh, Whereas in the American university system, as you know very well, you have to be a certain kind of professional scholar. You have to publish in a certain way with a certain audience in mind. you know, the protocols. Yeah. And so it wasn't possible to think exactly in the same way, let alone to write in the same way. But I always wanted to fertilize each each area of activity, Armenian intellectual writing, American English language scholarly writing. I wanted to, to cross over, but I don't know that I was all that successful. But the net result of that was remember that I mentioned it was I got tenure writing primarily about Thomas Pynchon, the novel, narrative theory. Mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. informed later, of course, this is this kind of thing is secret, but a professor t- who was present at the tenure discussion said, "Did you know that they had commissioned an Armenian professor to evaluate your Armenian work?" And in fact, it turned out to be Avedis Sanjian. They had written to UCLA and said, this guy spends a lot of his time doing this stuff. Is it worth anything? And Avedis had written a a generous letter. Uh, So two languages, two sets of thoughts, two intellectual attitudes, the more freewheeling attitude of an intellectual as opposed to the more protocol bound of a professor. They went along together. Uh, I like to think that secretly they... Each fed the other in some way, but if you pushed it and said to me, so demonstrate how, I don't think that I can. I mean, to Mm -hmm. some degree, we don't know ourselves so well that we can tell, I will use a biological word, how by osmosis things seep through the, the barriers between the two.
0: Yeah. Well, people talk about that for double consciousness, but yes. I'm sure these are not independent, working independently. They're always big, somehow interacting with each other, the two oh, yeah. consciousnesses. Yeah. So, I, I mean, both psychologists and the bubble, yeah. the,
1: the great African-American intellectual W.B. Du Bois wrote about double consciousness. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I cert—I I mean, I certainly think up to this point, I, I have double consciousness, But in some areas, I'm much more conscious of how they interact. And in others, I'm not at all sure. I know that sometimes when I watch movies that don't mean very much to other people, I'll react to a scene in a strong way. And what's happened is that something Armenian has come in, you know? Mm.
0: So the second stage in your long career as diaspora scholar, I think, begins with the founding of the diaspora, a journal of transnational studies in 1991. It seems to me to be a second stage because after 1991, your engagement on diasporas remain, remains predominantly, if yes. not exclusively within academic circles, yes. that begins having a significant impact on the establishment of the academic field of diaspora studies. Right. So uh, you spoke about the founding of the journal Diaspora, but would you... um? I, I'd like to hear your thoughts about this, my observations about these two stages of Hachik Tololian writing in Armenian and then mm-hmm. Hajik Tololian writing in English about diaspora uh, right. in a more academic manner. Right. As is often
1: the case, transitions don't happen on a dime, as we say. The transition is between 1987 go, going to lecture in in uh, Queens College and 1991, May, when the first issue appears. In between those four years, I was turning thought into action. So there were various things to do, such as constituting an editorial board, that is to say, inviting people from various disciplines to join the board and then to meet with the editorial board in order to set protocols and standards. Uh, Once that happens, I very quickly, within the next two or three years, I didn't write about uh, literature anymore in English in a scholarly fashion. I wrote more about literature as an army and intellectual. I don't remember when my last literary article was, but it was a long time ago. Uh, Nevertheless, I mean, I paid a price for that in the sense that the university was not happy with me uh, and my promotion to full professor was actually delayed. But there came a time when they realized that diaspora was really successful. And important, and the moment, the pivotal moment, was 1996 when Wesleyan was t- got a new president, and this new president was catching up with what do people do, and he said to his faculty, "If you're doing something I don't know about, tell me about it." Mm-hmm. And so I wrote a one-page, one-page thing, and he called me up on the phone from an airport, He's, and he said, "I'm going to give you twenty thousand dollars to in f- an office so you can start off." Doing, making this more successful. Oh, wow. um, just like that. He had nice. been the, under Ronald Reagan, he had been the director of what became Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Mm-hmm. And he was very interested in transnational, international, global things. And he yeah. said, you're a global thinker. Uh, and in those days, it wasn't a common thing as it is now. Um, so I'm losing the track of what you're saying. But what happened was that essentially four people were crucial to the foundation of diaspora studies. One Armenian, me, and three Jews, William Safran, Gabriel Sheffer, and Robin Cohen. Mm -hmm. Each of us had interests that overlapped with the other. And what is more important, I got along very well with all three of them. That is to say, when we met at conferences, we found that we had both an intellectual kinship and a certain passionate interest about diasporas. The joke used to be in the mid 1990s that we were the four horsemen of diaspora on mm-hmm. the on on four horsemen of the apocalypse. Yeah.
0: So remind me, where where should I go with this? Where what? No, that that's that's actually okay. good. I yeah. I was going to mention that in 1996, when Wesleyan president actually called you and asked you what you're doing on the site and you mentioned about the diaspora, you published two important articles: one yeah. about the Armenian American literature, the other about uh, rethinking diasporas, I think that's what, what, what it was. Yes. Rethinking diasporas is still one of the most important contributions to the field. That's my observation. So you. you don't have to agree with it, but no, it's, it's very no, important. No, thank you. But it, 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 I mean, I want to be correct you just slightly. He didn't call
1: me up to ask me what I was doing. He told the faculty to write him a letter if, he, if we wanted him to know we were doing things. No, right on the that side. Would not be- <laughs> commonly known yes but he, he literally i still remember i was in the office and the secretary said the president is calling you <laughs> from an airport i mean he had to use right. his time he, actually his son is a u.s senator now and his other son is an editor of the new york times it's a very well wow. <laughs> high level wasp yeah. family with, with, with money and connections and all those things yeah.
0: You've spent more than 40 years now thinking and writing about diasporas and the Armenian diaspora in particular. You began your academic contributions by analyzing the diaspora born Armenian terrorism, of which you spoke about. You examined the role of diasporic elites and institutions in the Armenian transnation. You wrote about the transition among Armenians in the diaspora from exilic nationalism to diasporic transnationalism. And most importantly, perhaps you conceptualized diaspora as stateless power in the transnational moment from the bird's eye view and somewhat in, self, in a self-reflexive manner, what do you think Patrick Tololians' most important contribution or intervention in the field of diaspora studies has been?
1: Um, well, the, the short answer to that is the disciplinary or scholarly field judges and the scholarly field judges the article of mine that is by far the most cited. There are over 1,200 footnote citations that Google counts. Let me guess, is it the nation-states and its others? No, the nation-state and its others, which was the introduction, was very, very frequently cited between 1991 when it appeared and 1996, which is when stateless power appeared. That has garnered more than 1,200 citations. I mean, my own feeling is that when I started out, I was very influenced by both my family background, which was that of Istanbul Armenians, and I was influenced by my familiarity with the New York Jewish community. Both of those communities are parts of a diaspora. Both of them are sedentary. And for me, one of the things that characterizes my work is that I think of the sedentary diasporas as more important than other people do in some ways. I mean, historians understand it, but the people who are sociologically driven, for example, don't don't understand it as well. And what my family background told me was that in Istanbul, we had no state of our own, but we developed an economy, a society, and a quasi-state set of institutions that did astonishing things. And they did everything from deliver services like education and health. I mean, I think Sultpurgich Hospital may be the first hospital in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, mm-hmm. So I had an appreciation always of what a diaspora community, lacking a state, could nevertheless do if its wealthy philanthropists, its religious leaders, its political elites, and its intellectual elites could work together. Mm-hmm. And I've never lost that sense. But it's also the so I tried to bring that to the field to say that there has to be a balance between our respect for the mobility of diasporas and its sedentariness. That's implicit in my work all the time. Uh, and I wasn't very sure about, how because the transnational was a concept that I encountered only in the late 80s, early 90s, through primarily through a man named Arjuna Padurai, who's a f- very famous uh, anthropologist. Um, what i wanted to what i thought was that diasporas could exist best at, if at least their elites had transnational connections and so one of the things that's changed for me is of course uh, the realization that the connections the transnational connections have just kept accelerating over the last 40 years but but it's important to say that my my idea of the importance of the sedentary in in the construction of stateless power. That that idea does not mean, as some people some people read the word stateless and they think I don't respect the state. I have a stateless Armenian's enormous respect and desire for a good, strong state. Okay. So what happened in Armenia in the last two years? Of course, it, you know it, it makes me happy as as much as I can possibly be happy about those things. <laughs> uh, there is. I've been reading Max Weber since I was sixteen years old. Uh, and you know the state and the institu- good functioning institutions of the state are just enormously important. Mm-hmm. So it's the, the relationship between the two.
0: Mm-hmm. As scholars, we all start with some concepts and views about the phenomenon we're studying, but oftentimes with years and experience, some of us rethink rethink our own earlier approaches. I would like to ask you about the changes that have occurred in your thinking about diasporas. How did you? your views change, what has changed, and how do you explain those changes?
1: My basic views about the sedentary, the mobility, the necessity of at least transnational elite connections and diasporas, those views haven't changed. But um, above all, above all, I've had to, to deal with two things which uh, essentially the world history brought up for us to consider. One, with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the emergence of globalization, was the acceleration of mobility, both the speed and scale of mobility. I don't think my thinking, but in my defense, I would say nobody's thinking had taken into account just how massive that was going to be, the speed and the scale. And the other is the fact of digitalization. And digitalization really is something where I'm very conscious that I'm weak. That is, I'm technologically backward. And I don't, I, I look at my students and I see just how totally their lives are now attached to their cell phones. And I can't quite think my way through to it. I'm aware of the importance of Facebook for Armenians. Everybody I met in Armenia in June 2018 said this is the Facebook revolution. All oh, um, right. But I, whether in homeland or in diaspora, I don't think that I have been able to fully engage and account for the impact of digitalization and of accelerating mobility. And there's a third thing, which I wish I understood better, which is that in many, many places, it's no longer homeland diaspora. The interaction between them in every way, not only transmissions of money, you know, remittances, we all know this, or culture, but more and more there are people who are emerging who don't even live in one, Mm You find this out, like for example, it's only talking to certain people in Armenia that I realized how much of a growing phenomenon it is that there's a whole class of Armenians who have Russian citizenship and Armenian citizenship, a house in Russia and a house in Armenia, or Iranian Armenians who have a foothold or a refuge in Armenia, continue to live in Iran, but send money and people back and forth. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, with the terrible stuff that's happened in Syria and Lebanon in the last 10 years. This is accelerating. That is to say, it's not homeland and diaspora so much as a, a circulation of mm-hmm. people, goods, and ideas to the degree that makes you wonder, so how do we need to change what how we think about diasporas? And I've tried. I'm not sure that I'm successful, fully successful, certainly, because um, partly one needs better data than we have. And, what what do I mean by data? You know, I know, everyone knows that there's the circulation, the digital circulation. When I say, what is the impact of that on a specific activity, an activity that sociology might study, I don't know, intermarriage, an activity that economists may study, so forth and so on, there still is not very much that says, here is what has changed because of that circulation. Now, other places, there is an article in a recent issue of Diaspora you may have seen, but I don't know whether you would have chosen to put the time in reading it. It's by an elderly anthropologist at the University of Hawaii who studied the same Pacific Island population for 40 years. And he watched that island essentially empty out as the people who lived in it ended up everywhere from Hawaii and California to to New Zealand and Australia. Mm -hmm. And he said, they were becoming a diaspora without a center. And then Facebook came along. They all joined it. They live on it. And he said, "Now I'm not sure I can say they're a diaspora. They're so connected. Now, mind you, this is an island of 1,500, 2,000 people. So while they have a very strong, distinct identity, it's a tiny one. And then uh, I have the sense now that Armenians live lived much of their life in homeland and diaspora on Facebook. And I don't... It's, I, of course, have taken note of that fact, but I don't know what the results of that fact are in the realm of things that poli- political scientists, social scientists, et cetera, study. The one, the one sort of outstanding, Gargarun, we say in Armenian phenomenon, is the events of, of March, April of 2018, which seem to have taken place in part because of Facebook. Yeah. Um. Everybody talks about digitalization. Very few studies can show the link between that and, as I say, the phenomena we study. Mm-hmm. All of us believe that there is a link. Yeah. You have to work out the mechanism. The article with which I started my relative success in Armenian terrorism these many years ago. What really hit non-Armenian scholars, political scientists who heard me was those are, Armenian terrorists hadn't just killed people, they had written about it, they had published things about it because in Lebanon, they had a radio station in Lebanon. I don't know if you know this. Yeah. They had radio programs and mm-hmm. they had a paper. And what I did was to analyze their writing and to show how they used tropes, figures from older Armenian literature in thinking about themselves. Mm-hmm. There, you can actually show a relationship and I, I i want studies done by people who are better suited than i am at this stage of my career who 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 show me uh what happens when 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 uh when diaspora studies meets the challenge mm-hmm. of uh the scale and speed of uh the way in which um, digitalization has taken over our so much of our lives i mean you you would you would know better than i do just what the, what the effect is what the material effect
0: Mm -hmm. is. So this actually links um, to my next question very well, because I was going to ask you about the current state and the future of the field of diaspora studies. Can we speak about a singular field, or it should be in plural, fields of diaspora studies, because it seems to be very dispersed among many disciplinary studies.
1: Dispersed is the right word to use, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, just look, I mean, just
1: as diaspora is a concept that, as a concept, has validity, but when you go beyond the concept, you see that you have to adjust to the multi-local diaspora communities. So people say to me, there's no army in diaspora. And I say, no, you're wrong. There's a concept of army in diaspora, and people respond to that concept. But if you mean, how is army in diasporicity lived out on a day-to-day, quotidian basis? then you have to go to the places. You can't look at that. In the same way, there is a diaspora studies, but it's not the same diaspora studies. What do I mean by that? For example, there's a journal that's been going now for some years, published in India by people that I know, called Diaspora Studies. When you look at their diaspora studies, then you look at Sikh studies, which is devoted entirely to Sikhs. I used to be on the board of that when it was created. Then you look at the diaspora journal that I edit. Then you look at the diaspora journal that emerged and died in France and emerged and died in Russia. There were two. Each of them has a different conception of diaspora. The major difference between the diaspora I established and everyone else is that I believed then and believe now that the study of literature and culture has to be an important part of diasporas. And most other journals are run by political scientists and sociologists, and they don't care. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think they're mistaken I think I'm right (laughs) Uh, I think that culture is enormously important even in nation states but even more so in diasporas when the state is absent so I think that the concept of diaspora that runs the journal that I founded now that I'm no longer the editor as of whenever it was some nine months ago yeah. The two editors, co-editors, one teaches literature at the University of California, Irvine, uh, Dr. Talal Shahinyan, and the other teaches political science and Middle Eastern politics at Sterling University in Scotland and is named Dr. Sosi Kasparian. And I think that that's the right thing. They may not always be balanced. There are always going to be more social science studies than literary, humanistic, cultural studies, but they belong together. Mm-hmm. And that's my view of diaspora studies but it's not a view from above diasporas are either succeed in creating some culture of their own, or if they have, look, they're going to, they don't have land. They don't have a distinct economy. They don't even have a distinct society. They don't have a language. What they have to have is a culture that says we have everything American culture has or English culture has, but we're different. Right. Creating cultural difference is how you keep a diaspora going mm-hmm. and you have to pay attention in how that cultural difference is created, even if it's William Saroyan writing a play that was never performed. He was contributing to Armenian culture.
0: Yeah. Although not in Armenian language, but still it's a contribution to Armenian culture. Uh, I would point
1: out again, I,
0: I, often right. people,
1: I annoy many Armenians when I say, because they think that I'm underestimating the importance of the language. Armenian language is enormously important to me, and I write in it and it's a necessary pleasure for me. But I point out that there's a huge jewish uh diasporic life that is conducted entirely in English, yeah, and immediately they say, the <laughs> guy it's because it's <of> because their religion <laughs> I know plenty of jews who have couldn't who haven't been inside a synagogue for years except for a funeral yeah who however have jewish American culture there is such a thing
0: yeah. um now that you have talked about various disciplines and how they can contribute to diaspora studies, is it at all fair to ask what disciplines are better equipped with theories, methodologies, tools to think with diasporas more productively? It's, it's
1: changing. Uh, I'll give you a very small account. When Oxford University Press, after the first year of diaspora, they analyzed sub, subscriptions. They wanted to see what departments were the people two departments provided the majority, the vast majority of subscriptions, people who were in English departments, but specialized in post-colonial studies
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and anthropologists. And some of the early important essays were by people who were historians of anthropology, like Jim Clifford, for example. Um, And I think my own view is that anthropology is best positioned to study diasporas. It is more culturally Inventive than sociology, they're related anthropologists. But Mm -hmm. the one thing that has made anthropology less effective is that the discipline itself has evolved very fast in the last thirty or forty years. So it had it has gone from a subject-object discipline to a subject discipline. What I mean by that is that originally an anthropologist was both supposed to be the conduct, the conduit, the mouthpiece through which the peoples it studied spoke. But there was to be a moment where the anthropologist had to stop being a participant observer and be an analyst and objectively analyze the phenomenon that he had captured subjectively. That was a very Mm -hmm. powerful approach. And some of the great anthropological studies are still emotionally and intellectually powerful to read. Mm -hmm. What's happened now is that whether political correctness or something else, the anthropologist is increasingly the conduit of the voices of the subjects he or she studies. And that has weakened its grasp on some of the diasporic level uh, phenomena that are there. You can't just be an advocate of the people you study. There's nothing wrong with being their advocate. Oh, yeah. But if you're going to be a scholar, that has to be an objective moment, as we Armenians know all too well. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So I would say anthropology was. Inevitably, sociology and migration sociology are going to be very important. They have already become important and are going to be very important as long as the scale and speed of migration continues. But I myself, this won't surprise you by now, I think that cultural study of the sort that looks at all discursive practices of a diasporic community is the way to go. Mm-hmm. i mean you have to understand what a discursive practice is you have to understand that culture doesn't just mean language it doesn't just mean dance but it means the way in which diasporic culture is produced and reproduced and the analysis of the themes that cut cut across its various discursive practices is what 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 interests me the most and what i think is promising if done well uh there are it is difficult to do and i can only point to a handful of articles in the journal Diaspora, that I think do it very well, but I think they're exemplary. And when I taught Diasporas, I always taught them.
0: Mm-hmm. It's uh. not
1: look. I am I'm very familiar. I'm, I'm intimately familiar with the social sciences. Uh, my closest non-Armenian friend is an economist, and I've spent a lot of time reading historians and social scientists. I admire and respect those disciplines. But I think they missed some of the aspects of the diaspora.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, we could indeed go on continuing this interesting conversation about diasporas, but we need to wrap up and conclude. Um, <laughs> so, what, what would be your advice for aspiring students who want to become diaspora scholars or who want to study the Armenian diaspora?
1: Um, the first thing I would say is that every, as everybody understands, and 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 the pandemic only makes it more serious. There aren't many good jobs, uh, so if you're doing this in order to achieve a career fast, uh, forget it. <laughs> uh, but the advice I would give is always the same. Uh, the in the United, the key fact of U.S. Academy is that both hiring and grant giving are still overwhelmingly, despite all the interdisciplinary language that's used, are still overwhelmingly discipline and department-oriented. Right, You have to pick a department or a discipline. You have to excel at it until tenure, and then you can do anything you want.
0: Hmm. I think that's a good point. My guest today has been Dr. Hajik Tololian. He's a professor of English and comparative literature at Wesleyan University, and he was the founding editor of Diaspora, a journal of transnational studies. I want to thank you for joining me today, Khadjik. I want to thank you for making me think about my life <laughs> in a new way. I appreciate it. And I appreciate the Society for Armenian Studies as always. Yeah. Okay? Thank you very much. Thank you.